Welcome to NSI Live, the National Security Institute's podcast home for NSI's public events, limited series podcasts, and breaking news podcasts. To learn more about NSI and register for upcoming events, visit nationalsecurity.gmu.edu. Also, be sure to follow us on Twitter at MasonNatSec. Now, on with the show. Thanks for joining us. I'm Jamil Jaffer, founder and executive director of the National Security Institute at George Mason University's Anton Scalia Law School. The National Security Institute was founded three years ago to fulfill a significant gap in academia by standing up for robust American national security posture and providing realistic, actionable recommendations to policymakers. To achieve that aim, this year we're focusing on two of the most pressing issues in national security today, China's rise and preserving U.S. technology innovation leadership. Today we're launching one of those projects, China's rise, confronting China's challenge to the new world order. In the wake of the collapse of the Soviet Union, the United States was the world's only superpower. Over the past 20 years, as the U.S. and its allies have focused on battling radical Islamic terrorists around the world, China has focused on strengthening its economic power and enhancing its military might. Today, China has become a near-peer competitor to the United States, and America's leader, as, as leader of the world, is under threat. This project seeks to identify diplomatic, economic, and military policies the U.S. government should pursue to effectively respond to the threat to U.S. interests and individual liberty posed by the Chinese Communist Party. To discuss these and other issues, we're excited to have Michelle Flournoy, former Undersecretary of Defense for Policy, in conversation with Ali Velshi, the host of Velshi on MSNBC. Michelle served as the Undersecretary of Defense for Policy from February 2009 to February 2012. She was the Principal Advisor to the Secretary of Defense in the formulation of national security and defense policy, oversight of military plans and operations, and in National Security Council deliberations. As part of her duties, she led the development of the DOD's 2012 Strategic Guidance, and prior to service as Undersecretary of Defense for Policy, she co-founded the Center for a New American Security and served as its president. She currently serves on the board for CNAS and is the co-founder and managing partner of West Executive Advisors. Ali Velshi is the host of Velshi, a new waking morning show for MSNBC, airing from 8 to 10 a.m. on Saturdays and Sundays. He also serves as a fill-in prime anchor and covers breaking news for the cable network. Ali has covered a wide range of global issues throughout his career, including the spread and defeat of ISIS, the Iran nuclear deal, and tensions between Russia and the West. Prior to his new show, Ali anchored MSNBC Live and Velshi and Rule. Before joining NBC News and MSNBC in 2016, Ali Velshi hosted on Target, a nighttime primetime, a nightly primetime news show on Al Jazeera America and held various roles at CNN. Ali, over to you and Michelle. Take it away. Thank you very much, Jamil. And I'm liking the uh, facial hair. I hadn't seen that uh, until today. But thank you for hosting us. And uh, I love that you're outdoors. And Michelle appears to be outdoors, although that might be some trickery uh, of work from home and Zoom. But Michelle, thank you for being with us. I've been uh, really looking forward to this conversation because as a journalist who covers uh, international affairs, the the issue of China is confounding uh, because the the understanding that the general public, my viewers, have of China is a little bit confused. We're not entirely sure where China fits on the spectrum of threat or opportunity. It is, in almost every instance, both. It is a it is a defense cooperation opportunity, but there are ways in which it's a threat. It's a trade opportunity, but there are ways in which it's a threat. It's a uh, business and commerce opportunity and technology opportunity, but there are ways in which it is a threat. And this particular administration seems to have muddled that a lot. Uh, so, so right now in this moment, if you listen to the White House, you are hearing China in terms of it being uh, a, a belligerent in terms of internet, uh, election interference, in terms of the China virus or the Wuhan virus, depending on whom you ask, uh, in terms of trade and, and national security. 
give us a more nuanced picture, the picture that people like you who have been steeped in uh, global policy and defense, how are we supposed to think about and develop policy writ large around China? Well, um, first of all, really happy to be here at this um, sort of inaugural NSI event and to be talking with you um, about such an important issue. I really think this is probably the most important issue for the United States to get right in the next 50 years, given how dependent the prosperity and security of Americans will be on the Asia Pacific and what happens there um, for years to come. So, you know, China requires a very thoughtful and nuanced approach. As you said, they're not an enemy um, and they're not exactly an ally. Um, They are deeply integrated into the global economy. Um, And um, so Cold War thinking, uh, Cold War analogies don't work very well. In fact, sometimes they lead us astray in thinking about China. I think we have to recognize we're in a competition that has many different dimensions. One is economic, another is technological. Um, There are military and security dimensions. There are political influence and information uh, dimensions. Um, But I think the name of the game should be to compete well as the United States without necessarily turning China into a full spectrum dedicated adversary. Because we certainly have differences. We have differences over Um, the rule of law, over the rules of the road that should govern international economics and commerce, over the rules of the road that should govern, you know, the use of technology, um, and so forth. But we also have uh, very important common interests. I mean, we can't get after the climate change problem seriously without China as a full partner. We can't get after nonproliferation challenges like North Korea without China as a cooperative partner. We can't get after a whole number of transnational threats without working with them. And so it's really, we've got to think this through in terms of a multi-dimensional competition um, where the name of the game is deterring conflict with another nuclear power, um, setting us up to compete and win in terms of the economic and technology dimensions. Um, and ensuring we do this in a way that really fortifies um, a, a rules-based order that, that is favorable to free market democracies. And, and, and I'll, I'll stop, but one of my cr- principal critiques of the current approach is the Trump administration is doing, uh, taking a very tactical bilateral approach. It's all U.S.-China. I think our greatest strength in approaching China is making alliance with all of the countries who share the same issues that we do and building a coalition of partners and allies to push back on China together. So let's pick up on that because those countries that you just described fall into two distinct categories. Uh, One of them are our major trading partners, all of whom would have agreed with uh, the Trump administration, some of their concerns about China uh, with respect to trade and, and, uh, and, and, and trademarks and intellectual property. And in fact, this could have been built as some sort of an international organized uh, pressure campaign to get China to, to come on board with some things. But instead, we went on this sort of wild trade war with everybody we could find, including Canada. There's another group of countries, and those are the, the countries around China who are somewhat reliant on trade with China or influenced by them because of proximity. And in the last election, um, all of the major candidates, and ultimately Hillary Clinton and, and Donald Trump, all decided that they would back away from the, uh, the TPP, uh, something that 
might have helped America have more influence in the, in the process. Now, part of the problem is that some of the ills and inequalities that we're facing in the world are due to some bad trade practices that we've had for the last 40 or 50 years. And people on the ground in countries all around the world are really mad about things that feel like free trade or freer trade or uh, trade with China. On the other hand, we might have walked out of a discussion that it was very important for us to be in by walking away from the TPP. So what does the next administration do to get themselves back at the table with our, our major trade allies and with China's uh, regional neighbors? Well, unfortunately, the perception in the region is that the U.S. has been pulling back from the Asia Pacific, um, particularly in the economic domain and then in the diplomatic domain. We are not showing up uh, and leading in the multilateral fora, which are the primary venues where the business of the region gets done. Um, I, I think it was a mistake, a huge strategic mistake to walk away from the TPP. I understand politically why, you know, the people chose to go in that direction. But the truth is the Obama administration had succeeded in negotiating a very high standards trade agreement that took account labor standards. Um, environmental standards, things that, you know, sort of favor U.S. Um, competitiveness. Um, and if we'd accompanied that uh, trade agreement with some investment in the reinvigoration, reskilling, reorientation of affected, negatively affected parts of our workforce, I think that would be, have been a huge strategic win because it would have signaled that the U.S. is investing in the region it's, it's trying to raise the standards and the fairness and the level playing field of trade in the region. Um, and it would have been a huge strategic sing signal that we're here and we're staying. Now we have to make up, now there's a perceived vacuum, there's a perceived U.S. pulling back, and we've got to sort of find new ways of, of convincing allies who negotiated in good faith and, and have proceeded with the agreement without us that we're still serious about Asia and that they can count on us. And that's gonna be something that probably will take more than one administration to recover from. It's, a number of these countries require patrons, right? And, and patrons are often developed through trade. The idea that you have strong trading relationships with either America or China, and you will depend on them for other things that move into defense policy. Um, to what, you, I think you said something interesting there. It might take a few administrations to do, but we're not even pointing in the right direction at the moment with yeah. respect to what it looks like in terms of engagement. And I've been talking to you about trade because that's sort of the language I use because I'm an economics guy, but you're, you're a defense policy expert. Um, and and it, it often is the same kind of behavior, right? It's two sides of the same coin, engagement. Um, the kinds of things we need to do to signal to countries around China or who fall uh, under China's uh, sphere of influence that America's there and prepared to be there both as a trading partner and as a defense partner. Right. But we can't just show up militarily. I mean, we are the preferred security partner um, for much of the region, and that's good news. But we also have to show up in other ways. I mean, we have to show up as a trade partner. We have to show up with foreign direct investment. Um, we have to show up as a, some, as a country that cares about the rules-based order and the rule of law. We have to show up in the multilateral institutions. We have to show up uh, diplomatically. Right now, some of our key diplomatic posts are, are empty. And, and literally, the United States is not showing up um, at the most senior levels. And when we do show up, we're not playing the traditional role that has given us great success, which is organizing and, and, and bringing together coalitions of like-minded states to push back collectively 
on China. When China has sort of moderated its behavior and stepped back from the, you know, from testing, it's been when it's gotten an international community response or a regional response, almost always orchestrated by the United States. When we try to go it alone and do it bilaterally or tactically, it's not very effective. So I think that's what my hope is. I, I think that is the kind, I mean, not, I don't, I don't want to be partisan here, but just analytically, mm-hmm. I don't expect a change of approach or tactics if there's a second Trump term. I think there'd be a dramatic change of strategy and uh, tactics if there's a Biden administration, because I think, um, you know, I think Biden's learning and experience in this area is going to direct him back to what's worked before, which is a U.S.-led coalition and allied approach to, to, to push back with China. At the same time, we're having a more strategic dialogue on how to work with them where we have to, like on, on issues like climate change. So you were saying that the words we used in the Cold War uh, don't apply here, but I want to go back to some Cold War language and some uh, Second World War language because it, it is uh, what Donald Trump talks about. Um, he sees uh, sort of as a binary uh, approach being tough on or appeasing. Uh, those are the two opposite sides of things. So how does, if there is a new administration, how do they approach China in a way that isn't what the Trump administration is doing, but doesn't fall victim to criticisms that uh, we are appeasing China? Well, I think you have to engage China and be tough on them. I mean, every administration since Nixon has had a strategic dialogue with China where we sit down and we try to identify areas where it's in our interest to work together, but we also push back on them where their behavior is unacceptable to us. Um, and I think we need we we need to do to do both. It's not an either or situation. Um, uh, even if you're focused on the military end of things and particularly shoring up deterrence and and avoiding potential miscalculation from Beijing, either underestimating our resolve to defend our interests and allies or underestimating our capability, strategic dialogue is an important part of of that to communicate that resolve, to communicate our interests, what we will defend, and to communicate our capability to reduce the risk of miscalculation. So the two go hand in hand. Dialogue doesn't mean appeasement. Dialogue can be used to to make your pushback more effective. Let me ask you about, if you had a list, if if, uh, there was either a new administration or this administration came to you and said, give me your top three lists, uh, list of things we need to solve or the top three uh, reasons we need to change our approach uh, to China. What what would they include? And I I, I mean, anything as broadly as how we deal with North Korea or trade issues or or military security issues, what, what would you think about? Well, I think the number one thing that we need to do to compete with China and to win um, is to invest in the drivers of our competitiveness here at home. Um, Science and technology, research and development, STEM education, 21st century infrastructure, um, uh, smart immigration policy that attracts the best and brightest from around the world and gets them to stay and invest in America. I mean, the, the way we will compete, I mean, we will do have much more success focusing on our own ability to compete than trying to, um, I mean, we do have to push back on China, but there's no way the United States can stop the rise of China. You know, we can complicate it, we can, you know, make it difficult in some areas, but this notion that we just have to stop them is not right. We have to invest in our own 
strength and resilience and capacity for innovation. And we can, we can, I am confident we can outcompete any country in the world if we invest in the right places here at home. So that's thing one. Thing two is what we mentioned before is um, building coalitions of like-minded states. Um, why not have a group of, um, of advanced democracies who are technological leaders who band together in a technology coalition? that really pushes, that shows up in international fora, gets the standards set in the right way, pushes back on the use of technologies for surveillance and human rights, rights abusive kind of purposes, you know, but really um, tries to, to advance uh, the West as in, 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 te in its technological leadership. Um, so those are some of the things that I would, I would point to. And then again, I think, re-engaging China on some of the things where we share interests, um, re-entering the Paris Agreement, sitting down with China and say, how do, how do we set the next round of goals? Because certainly Paris alone is not, you know, alone is not enough. Where, um, what, what does the average person not know uh, to think about with respect to China militarily? What's going on that we don't know? Is it development in the South China Sea? Is it aircraft carriers? Is it uh, cyber uh, capabilities? What do you think we don't know? I think most Americans um, don't understand the extent to which China has gone to school on the American military. They have studied the original Gulf War, and they have developed an asymmetric Strategy. They're not trying to mirror us, but they're really, they've gone after technologies that can undermine our strengths. So, you know, cruise missiles that can sink aircraft carriers and our ability to project power, for example. Um, and also um, developed areas of technology where they hope to stop the war before it starts. Meaning if they were going to invade Taiwan, um, their, their, one of their primary early objectives would be stop the United States from responding. And so in their doctrine, they envision significant cyber and space attacks to try to thwart our ability to move forces into the region. Um, that's a very different kind of approach to how people think about wars normally starting. Um, and it does require... Uh, sitting down with the Chinese and talking to them about why that is so dangerous, because I think that kind of approach would have all kinds of second or third order effects that could actually cause a U.S. president to go more forcefully into a confrontation as opposed to backing off. So there's a huge realm for miscalculation. I don't think either country wants war with the other. These are two nuclear powers. Um, that are very interested in economic recovery and growth. But the risk of miscalculation, because we do not understand each other or our, our capabilities, uh, is very, very real. And I think that's what needs to be addressed. I want to ask you about some regional specific things. Let's talk about North Korea. Um, to what degree is that a problem that requires a better relationship with China to solve? Um, China's role is essential. North Korea's only real friend in the world, only real patron is China. Um, in the times in the past where we've successfully gotten the North Koreans to the negotiating table and achieved at least some near-term or short-term uh, positive outcomes, it's been because China has pushed them to lower the temperature, refrain from provocation, you know, 
lower tensions. Um, so I think it's very difficult to get North Korea to agree to anything if China is not encouraging them to do so. Um, that said, you know, we haven't had good luck with North Korea, even with Chinese help, in, in getting sustained solutions or permanent improvement. Um, and that remains a problem. China's biggest worry is that North Korea's misbehavior will um, start some kind of crisis or conflict that would create a huge flow of refugees across the North Korean Chinese border. And they are not interested in having that happen. So that's their primary interest in keeping things stable. What about Taiwan? What, what, how should the United States be thinking about Taiwan as it relates to China? I think we want to make sure that um, China understands that, uh, you know, aggression against Taiwan, you know, resolving the Taiwanese issue with the use of force or through coercive measures is not acceptable. And the international community will uh, respond to that. Taiwan is a democracy. Um, uh, we, I think it's, we've had invested in some very, uh, in a very important relationship there and particularly on the defense side, focused on their ability to defend themselves. Um, but, you know, w there's one China policy. There's also the Taiwan Relations Act. Multiple U.S. administrations have navigated that policy and it's been fairly consistent over time. Um, and I think the Chinese should understand that, that there's still bipartisan consensus in support of that policy. Um, and the bottom line is aggression to resolve the Taiwan issue is not going to be acceptable to the United States and to our and to other partners around the world. Taiwan and North Korea are still higher level problems for most Americans, not something that they think about every day. There are two more direct issues uh, right now. One is Hong Kong uh, mm -hmm. and what is unfolding before us. And the second one, which is surprising to me as a journalist, and maybe the failing is ours, is uh, what's going on with the Uyghurs in China, which appears to be um, human rights abuses of a scale that, generally speaking, the Western world would not tolerate. Uh, and as said post-World War II, that we won't let happen, although we have let happen in other parts of the world. Let's talk about those two things right now. They're, they're a little more palpable, a little more tangible for a lot of Americans. Yeah, well, I think it's very important that the, the United, United States foreign policy, you know, reflects our interests and our values. And it's important for us to speak up when there are gross human rights abuses, whether it's, you know, the, the, the arrest and, and uh, interrogation or even disappearance of, of democracy protesters in, in Hong Kong, or whether it's the you know terrible suppression uh, and surveillance and incarceration of um, of the Uyghurs um, on a massive scale, as you noted, um, in China itself, um, you know China always says you know we want relations where we accept the differences in our systems, and you shouldn't try to change our system, and we won't try to change yours. Um, and I don't think, you know, U.S. policy is trying to overthrow the Communist Party, but I do think it's important for us to say, you know, you, you know, human rights are universal. And when China violates its own agreements with Hong Kong, um, when it violates international standards of human rights and the treatment of parts of its population, it should expect the United States to speak out and it should expect there to be some consequences, not only with the U.S., but with the broader international community. 
had a conversation the other day with uh, Peter Navarro from the White House, and it sort of set off uh, a, a tone of things that were coming from the White House uh, routinely now on a daily basis, talking about the Wuhan virus, the China virus, the degree to which China, uh, according to this White House, tried to engineer the virus and then sent hundreds of thousands of people's, uh, people on planes to the West. Uh, now we are talking almost daily about China's interference in the election. Uh, the, the concern I have is that some of these things might be true, but it's not clear what's true because it's because the administration does not seem to have a nuanced approach to this. There is uh, something afoot that seems to have something to do with the election uh, and the, the president perhaps using uh, China as an excuse for an outcome uh, of the election. However, it's getting Americans' attention. So if you were going to be the interpreter next to the message that's coming out from this ad administration about China, virus, interference, election, what would you say we should be looking for? Uh, I, you know, I do think that um, election periods tend to be periods where we see an increase in hostile rhetoric. Um, sometimes it's towards Russia, sometimes it's towards China. I think in the Russia case, it's pretty well deserved given their interference in the last election. And certainly China is taking all kinds of cyber action. They took a page from Russia's playbook in our last election. And I think they are experimenting in terms of using cyber and social media um, in some of their own ways. Um, but I think that in this context, look, we have, we've had a mishandling and a failure of leadership in addressing the pandemic here at home. And now we're dealing with the horrific consequences of that. We have a very, you know, we've had very tough implications for our economy, for Americans, um, you know, Americans, many Americans who've lost their jobs. Um, and we've got, you know, a societal crisis with regard to race and injustice on our hands. I think some of this is the, the President Trump looking for um, a, a different headline and a different story and a different focus of people's attention. That is not to say that China isn't conducting cyber attacks. It is. It's not to say that China, you know, had withheld information and was not forthcoming on the pandemic. You know, that is true. But I think they are sort of taking seeds of truth and ramping them up for political purposes in a way that is frankly not terribly helpful for the American people in terms of the leadership they're looking for right now, but also not helpful to the longer term U.S.-China relationship. I mean, ironically, pandemics is one of those places where we should be cooperating. I mean, this administration, I wish the administration would have started by calling a G7 meeting and then a G20 meeting. And as previous administrations have done when faced with H1N1 or Ebola or what have you, they used U.S. leadership to convene the international community, including China, and come up with a collaborative approach to reduce the threat to everyone. That did not happen. And so now even pandemic response has become a battleground, uh, which it never should be. I want to explore uh, something you talked about earlier, this uh, system destruction warfare, the idea of crippling your adversary uh, at the outset of uh, a conflict. China has um, capabilities known as C4ISR, that's command, control, communication, consumer, uh, computers, intelligence, surveillance, and, and reconnaissance. The idea is to... Um, is to undermine its resolve and send a message that you don't want to get into a, a, a conflict with us. How do you counter that? So 
um, I think the idea that uh, China has is to try to take down our networks, our command and control and communications networks in a way that would make it very difficult for U.S. forces to move or to mass or to coordinate action in the region. And so part of that in their own literature is launching massive cyber attacks on the electrical grids around U.S. military bases from which our forces would deploy. Um, and, you know, so that's, you know, in a, the mind of a Chinese military theorist, that may sound great. But in practice, those same electrical grids probably support civilian hospitals or emergency response or what have you. And if you launch such an attack, you would almost certainly have American civilian deaths. And so one of the things I would like the Chinese to understand is that if you launch a cyber attack that actually kills American civilians on American soil, you will not have a president who sits back and says, I'm not getting involved. You're going to have a president who is almost, almost has to respond in some way. And so that's a classic example of, of them making assumptions about how we would respond that are patently wrong. And we need to clarify that so they don't make that mistake. And in, in, in the effort of supporting deterrence, those are the kinds of miscalculations that we want to try to clear up and avoid. I, I do think the point that you made that our, our best uh, defense may be a good offense, not necessarily with respect to defense stuff, but with respect to expertise and education, uh, um, immigration policy, things like that. Uh, what form does that take? Because that's typically outside of defense policy. Sure. That's big policy. That's that's societal improvement stuff. That's infrastructure. Um, that's different departments. So how do you how do you sell that to an administration? And what does that look like to the American people? I think this is sort of a moonshot moment. It really is a Kennedy style. You need presidential leadership. You need a president who says, "I know we've had this triple crisis." We are, Americans are hurting, but I believe in this country. I believe in our resilience. I believe in our ability to rise from the ashes as we have so many times before. Here is my vision. We are going to be the best in X, Y, and Z. And, you know, pick your technology areas, pick your economic areas. We are going to outcompete. We are going to win by outcompeting as we always do. And we are going to win by attracting partners and allies who stand with us and go to push back together. And that's how we're gonna be effective. And then you set out a, a sort of plan that crosses, that uses various parts of government, not to do it all by government, but to incent private sector behavior by you know, placing bets in research and development, by doing smart tax policy that incentivizes investments in the areas you care about and so forth. So it does take national leadership and it does take pulling together a truly national strategy for this. But I think, I think the American people would be hungry for that. I think you could build a bipartisan consensus behind that. Um, and, if, and to me, that's the only way we come out of this strong. If we don't have a strategy like that, you know, I, I, I fear for where we are in 20 or 30 years. Yeah, the problem is that the way we have framed this is as a, a, a trade issue and you have advers adversaries and you have allies. Uh, you have framed it as a competitive issue, mm -hmm. right? So if we are talking about 
I don't know, making America great again from a competitive perspective, that's, that's what you're discussing, right? You're talking about all the ways in which we can be kept competitive in terms of uh, attracting the smartest, creating the smartest, deploying uh, the smartest. That's a different bucket. And I think that's part of the problem. The way Americans have been caused to think about China over the last three and a half years and maybe longer has been uh, ally or adversary, threat or opportunity, as opposed to competitor. Yeah. No, I agree with that. But, and I also think it's like we sometimes lose, lose confidence in our own strengths. I mean, people always ask me, but, you know, is, is China winning? Would you trade the U.S. military for the Chinese military? Absolutely not. Would I trade Silicon Valley for, you know, um, Chinese, the Chinese tech sector and civil military fusion? Absolutely not. I mean, we have such strengths if we play out. We have the the better hand of cards. We're just not playing the hand very well right now. What do we do about, this week it's TikTok, right? We're talking about TikTok and the idea that the Chinese government has a hand in anything, in in everything that that is involved in Chinese enterprise. Uh, How does that work out? Because now with our multinational corporations, both based here and uh, in China, there's a fundamental um, view that people hold here in America, and that is it's very hard for America, American private companies to compete with Chinese private companies because Chinese private companies have a leg up by virtue of their connection uh, almost always to the Chinese government and the resources available to them, maybe the espionage available to them, maybe the support of government available to them. How do we think about that? Yeah, but here's where I think China may be its own worst enemy because they have demonstrated that they are willing to use their leading technology companies for the purposes of data gathering massive amounts of private data, conducting surveillance, using that data and that surveillance as tools of oppression or social kind of management and engineering. Most Western customers are really not comfortable with that. They don't want their data exported to China. They don't want you know, to have software that may have a backdoor that's exporting their data without their knowledge. And so what I think is interesting about the Microsoft TikTok deal is, is this a potential model for, you know, uh, taking a Chinese company uh, and a popular, you know, offering like TikTok, but creating a Western model for its use in the West that, you know, make sure that the, the source code is not doing something we don't think want it to do, it's not supposed to do, that's protecting the data and keeping it from going back to China. You know, that is, that is um, allowing a Western company to, to sort of build on that, but, but, but taken in a, a model that, you know, ensures trust and transparency, data security, um, authenticity, you know, et cetera. And so, I mean, I think we'll have to see how this plays out, but we're, we're never going to completely decouple from China, nor should we, because it's not in anybody's interest. In certain areas, like national security areas, absolutely, we need to have separate supply chains and protect those. But in most of these dual-use technology areas, it's going to require different models of management. And I think the Microsoft deal is an interesting, if it goes through, it's an interesting possible future model that we should we should sort of look you know take a look at and see how it works
I want to turn briefly to defense spending, uh, something that has now in the crosshairs of these social movements in the United States, where the arguments are that the United States spends so much more than the next 10 countries combined or whatever it is, uh, and we could be spending that on on uh, things other than either military or policing in this country. You've written in a number of articles that uh, specifically with respect to China and its military capabilities or its defense broadly, I I think you write about it more broadly than military, but defense uh, capabilities, the United States has to be spending more. Is that going to be a difficult argument to make to a a new administration if there's a democratic administration? I actually think, I I mean, I acknowledge that there are huge pressures because of COVID, the economy, other needs um, that will be pushed, you know, the huge pressures on the budget overall, Defense is 50% of discretionary spending, so defense will be under pressure. Um, I think whether it's Trump or Biden, you're going to see a relatively flattening of the defense spending curve, not not the increase that was originally projected. Um, I don't argue that we need to spend more in general. I argue that we need to spend better and smarter. And relative within what we're going to allocate to defense, relatively more of that the resourcing needs to go to the dealing with the China problem and particularly to sharpening our edge in a way that really underwrites and makes much more robust deterrence, because that is the name of the game. Again, staying out of conflict with a nuclear power, but doing so on our terms in a way that protects our interests and allies. So I think it's a matter of placing the right big bets on key technology areas. It's finding the right balance between the sort of legacy platforms that are the core of the defense program and the new technologies that will make them more effective against in a, in a, few, in a much more contested in, environment. Um, but it's not overall increase in defense spending because I don't think that's realistic or in the cards no matter who wins the election. It's really spending smarter. Let me ask you about shipping routes, whether it's through the Arctic, uh, which are developing, uh, or the the South China Sea. This has been an area of tension for some time. Uh, It is something that our our allies in the region are very concerned about. China continues its push um, into uh, militarization or or military-style development of posts in the South China Sea. How should we be thinking about that? Well, it's interesting, the two cases together. I think the Arctic is still at a stage where, again, with the right leadership, um, you could have the U.S. coming into the Arctic Council and trying to negotiate some rules of the road for the future so that we can all benefit from the opening, from the additional commerce, um, and so forth, without um, sort of stimulating a sort of, you know, an open military competition in the space. Um, I think the South China Sea is sort of an area, uh, is, is more of a picture of, you know, what happens when we don't successfully marshal our forces and our allies to do that? Um, and so now you really do have kind of a might, might makes right dynamic in the South China Sea um, with China using a lot of coercive measures short of outright military force to basically intimidate smaller countries um, in areas where, you know, sovereignty is disputed or fishing rights are disputed or resources are disputed. Um, and I think the U.S. has done a good job of showing up, the U.S. military, to do freedom of navigation operations. Um, but, you know, a much more whole-of-government approach needs to be undertaken to try to uh, get that back into a better place. But I think the Arctic, it hasn't, you know, we aren't, it's not too far gone. I mean, that is an area where if we played our cards right, 
with the right leadership, the right diplomacy, we might actually be able to negotiate some rules of the road that would avoid it becoming more like the South China Sea. Uh, let me ask you about, I've got a number of questions. I was going to go there in about 10 minutes to a, a bunch of questions, but I'm seeing a lot of them pile up. So I might go a little bit earlier, but I want to ask you one more thing before I do. And uh, that is you, uh, you wrote an article on June 19th of this year uh, with Josh Hockman saying, treat China's border clash with India as a clarion call. What do you mean by that? I mean that I think it's part of this larger um, evolution that we've seen from President Xi, where um, in this period where a lot of countries are turning inwards, they're dealing with COVID, they're dealing with the economic implications, China is using it as an, a moment to flex its muscle. And we're seeing this, we're seeing it in the South China Sea, we're seeing it on its land borders, we're seeing it um, in other areas. And so it's sort of a wake-up call to say, look, um, let's be clear-eyed about what China is doing here. And these things are um, connected. Um, and we need to uh, sort of muster, you know, all of the affected countries to band together, to push back together, to be more effective. I want to go to some questions because there are some, uh, some interesting ones here. Uh, Dimitri is asking, what do you think of the Trump administration renaming the region from Asia-Pacific to Indo-Pacific? And do you think a potential Biden administration would keep that language? What's the significance of it? I mean, I do think the significance is that it's, you know, Asia-Pacific people don't always think of the Indian Ocean. I do think the area of competition does extend to the um, to include the Indian Ocean and 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 south parts of South Asia, so I think that was the intent behind it. Um, you know, from for a Chinese for China, a China that fears encirclement and efforts to contain it, it may play into those fears. But I you know I don't know that. Um, I, I do think from a strategic perspective, we want to think about the region holistically um, uh, and including the Indian Ocean. Uh, whether there would be a renaming, uh, I have I have no idea. <laughs> uh, I've been meaning to ask you this question, and uh, and someone else has. Norman is asking it for China. The Middle East is the most important region outside of Asia. The region's trade routes, energy supplies, and in the case of Iran, willingness to defy the United States assure that it will maintain this role. How do we manage the relationship in a region where the U.S. appears to be pulling back and often criticizing its partners? Yeah, I mean, this is really important. And I think, you know, it's, it's thinking about the China competition is not just in Asia. It's really global. Um, and yet we can't try to compete everywhere. Not everywhere is equally important. So we, when we look at something like Belt and Road, when we look at China's um, inroads in the Middle East, we have to decide, you know, where do we care? <laughs> where does that impinge on our interests, things that we hold dear? And where, you know, does it not? Um, and then we need to think about how do we compete most effectively. And again, it's not going to be by having a U.S. version of One Belt, One Road. That's not, you know, going to work for us. But asymmetrically, what can we offer um, that would make a difference? I, I think in a lot of our, in the case of a lot of our Middle Eastern partners, what they really want is, you know, help with things like entrepreneurship, with tech innovation, you know, with bringing their economies into the 21st century. Um, that's, that's a tremendous area of strength um, for the United States, but we don't necessarily play, play our cards to, to emphasize that strength. Uh, we got a question uh, here. Don't we need punitive measures to compensate for the forced IP and data transfer? Uh, what do you propose uh, if there's a new president? 
No, I mean, I think we do need to look when, when we find these, um, these, uh, this IP theft, which is now in the tens of billions, if not hundreds of billions of dollars over many years. You know, first of all, if we catch people, we need to prosecute them using the full force of law. Um, I think we need to think about sanctioning individuals and organizations that are involved. Um, you know, if we see Chinese government over its sponsorship or use of Chinese government facilities in supporting these efforts, we need to uh, take that on directly. Um, so I, I do think we need a very forceful um, approach uh, when, uh, and, and also obviously investing in our cybersecurity and our means of preventing it in the first place. Um, so I think, you know, you need a full, full approach. But the, the, the thing I see right now is you have a lot of tactical tit-for-tat responses that are sort of absent a strategy that's pulling it all together to get, you know, to be more effective in getting to the kind of outcomes we're looking for. Um, and so, it, it, you know, our actions are just generating Chinese reactions as opposed to a more fundamental reconsideration of behavior in certain areas. I'm gonna try a little trick. If I press answer live, what does that mean? Okay, I don't know what it means, but I uh, <laughs> thought I'd try it. Uh, Dimitri has a question. This, this speaks to uh, what you talked about, about us being uh, particularly competitive. Uh, and you said, what's your view on the need for industrial policy in this country in key areas such as 5G, quantum computing, semiconductors, et cetera, et cetera, to better compete against China. So you, you've laid out sort of a, a general sense of us being more competitive on the types of businesses and people we need to compete with China. But there are specific things, and that's just a small list of them, in which China is exceeding American capacity. Yes. No, I, I don't, I, you know, industrial policy is one of those third rail words that, you know, means different things to different people. What I would say is the federal government needs to use its resources to place some big bets in areas where, where we believe that, you, you know, U.S. being competitive is absolutely critical to our success. I would say AI is one of those, 5G is another of those. There are a whole list of them that we could go, semiconductors. Um, the uh, supercomputing, I mean, quantum computing and so forth. We could go through the list. But in those areas, we need to create a vision. I think the National Commission on AI has actually done a really good job of kind of creating a vision for where we should be trying to go. And then we need to use the various tools of policy to try to attract and incent the private sector to, to jump on those big bets with the government. Um, and that's thing, everything from science and technology and research development investment, um, federal procurement, tax policy, you know, uh, investment in infrastructure, investment in workforce and talent and STEM education. I mean, there's just a whole range of tools in the federal toolkit that can, um, it, you know, if the private sector believes that we're serious about it, they will come. I mean, it is an if you build it, they will come kind of situation if you get the incentives right. Uh, I certainly think 5G should be one of those areas. You know, we, it's, it's a classic case where we're, we're sort of starting from behind, but I'm not a technologist, but my, when I talk to people who are technologists in this area, you know, we're going to move into next second and third generation of 5G that's going to be much less dependent on things like hardware writing stations and much more dependent on software 
solutions. Um, and that should be a place where we outcompete China, uh, to be sure. I, I, I want to combine another question that's in here. I, I'm not a big fan of this first hundred days thing, but is there is this something that a new president or the next president needs to think about as things that can be done in the short term, as opposed to what you are discussing, which is a very long term. At one point in this conversation, you talked about for the next 50 years, and that is how we have to think about it. Uh, I have one question here that says China is the global master of the long game. How can we instill that philosophy here in the U.S. and specifically in our foreign policy and the executive branch? As an experienced China hand, I've always seen this as our greatest deficit in the U.S. So I'm, I'm asking you both questions, really. How do we think about the long game? And is there a very short term thing that the government needs to do? Yeah, no, I think I think that if we spoke about it in terms of national competitiveness and a series of big bets, I think you could build a lot of bipartisan consensus around that because there's so much overlap with an, a domestic economic recovery agenda, right? Um, and so, you know, you know, I, I think there there are parts of U.S. policy where we've been managed to managed to sustain a pretty long-term bipartisan consensus. They are the exception, not the rule. But that's what I think we should be aiming for, that this is a long-term competition and we need to sort of invest in some things that are going to remain, you know, foundational, um, no matter, you know, how administrations change. Um, hard to do, but not, not impossible to do in my, in my view. But I think you have to, it can't just be a foreign policy vision, it has to be deeply intertwined and connected with our reinvestment here at home. Um, to me, that's the only way you're going to get the political buy-in that you need to make it sustainable. It doesn't work that well on a bumper sticker, though, but I, I, uh, I see your yeah. point. The first 100 days is really just a great moment. To, it's, a, it's, a, it's a time to signal um, change. It's a time to signal um, new initiatives to create a sense of momentum. So I do think some of this is important to frame in, in very early in an administration. Uh, how do we? You, you said earlier that it's not our role to have a one belt one road, and I was I was intrigued by that because there are parts of the one belt one road message that signify. Uh, to use modern nomenclature, allyship. The idea that it's it's yeah. it's it's. Uh, you know, it's, it's infrastructure building, it's money available to you, it's protection and, and uh, patronage. Talk to me about what we can or should be doing that China is doing with, with other nations. So what I meant is, I mean, one belt, one road in the style of China. I mean, we're not going to go build soccer sta sta stadiums and bridges to nowhere. We're not going to have American workers come in and do all the labor. We're not going to impose draconian amounts of debt on the recipient countries and then make them beholden to us. I mean, so, I, but it, what I've tried to think of, you know, where we do need to compete, maybe it's um, laying fiber optic cable and, give, and, and helping a com country uh, get broadband access for its population so that they can, you know, have access to a free and open internet and the transparency and all the opportunity that that allows. Maybe it is, it's you leveraging our incredible NGOs who are doing real poverty reduction work that, you know, empowers women and girls and raises whole communities. It, it bring, you know, brings education uh, to, to underserved populations. You know, so there's a different American approach, I guess is what I was trying to say. We don't have the money to do it everywhere equally well, 
So I think we need to align those investments um, in areas that are really strategically important for us. Um, and that's, uh, so it's not compete everywhere. It's picking our battles and then competing in a way that really showcases how the American model and what America offers is very different. And again, entrepreneurship, growing future leaders, those kinds of things, which is, I think, going to be on its, you know, on its own terms, much more attractive to many countries than the Chinese model. Uh, Harold's got a great question. China's become more confident or aggressive uh, of late. Do you believe that this is a product of the current administration's worldview resulting in the fracturing of the international community? Or was this an inevitable outcome, uh, which just happens to coincide with it? It's both. It's China was reaching a stage of its development with Xi, and we saw this starting in the second Obama term, where the, the sort of mask was coming off and the traditional hide and bide strategy, we're just a little developing country, don't worry about us, we're focused internally on developing you know, economic development for our own people, to know, you know we want to retake our place in the world, and we intend to be a global power, we intend to be regionally dominant, and so forth. So that was naturally occurring um, you know, with China's rise. And then you've had, I think, some of the ways in which this administration has misplayed its hand or not had a clear-eyed strategy, a holistic strategy for China has, has actually made it worse, plus some of our own mistakes here at home which have fed the Chinese narrative. I mean, part of the problem is our mishandling of COVID, our you know, mishandling of the economic situation is fueling the Chinese narrative that you see democracy is messy, it's ineffective, it's not working, you know, come join the, the Chinese model and, and let us be your primary partner because you can't really count on those Americans anymore, they're just a mess. You know, we've, we've contributed to some of that ourselves, um, and we've got to reverse that. And, and we've got to, and again, investing in our own competitiveness, showing the world that we can recover, we can recover better, we can build, you know, build, a, you know, more resilience and sort of really compete effectively again. That's more than anything else is going to re-establish re the attraction um, of, the United States and of being on the U.S. team. Uh, in an article that I quoted from earlier that you wrote on, uh, I think, July, uh, June 20th, um, I've lost the, oh, here it is, how to prevent a war in Asia. I want to just quote something you said, reestablishing a forum in which China and the United States could regularly discuss their respective interests and perspectives, identify areas of potential cooperation, such as non-proliferation and climate change, and manage their differences short of conflict is essential. Tactical discussions on trade issues are simply not enough. After all, deterrence depends on the clear and consistent communication of interests and intent in order to minimize the risk of miscalculation. What does that forum like? Is that established uh, forums and, and, and avenues for communication that we already have? Or are you, su are you suggesting something uh, different, a task force-like thing with China? It's something that we've had in previous administration. There was a version of this in Obama. There was a version of this in Bush. It's a, you know, sort of often senior leader level of engagement, but with ongoing engagements at the cabinet level, you know, on a regular basis. 
Um, and it's uh, very, very important on the military side. You know, even at the height of the Cold War with the Soviet Union, we negotiated an incidence at sea agreement to basically say, you know, if there's a miscalculation or if there's some kind of clash, how do we de-escalate? What are the rules of the road to avoid the clash in the first place and de-escalate an unintended confrontation, you know, if one occurs? We don't have anything like that with China. We need to get something like that in place. So there's all kinds of risk reduction measures at a minimum that we need to start with. We need to have a, a forum where we can consistently bring our concerns about everything from cyber attacks to IP theft to unfair economic practices or human rights violations, whatever the issue is. And then we also need to be able to say, look, whatever our issues are over here, we are in a world of hurt on climate change if, if we don't cooperate to get to a better answer. So all of that needs to happen. There needs to be a regular form for doing that. Every administration up until this one has had something along those lines. We need to reinstitute it. Uh, Michelle, I'm going to close it off there. We've only got a couple minutes left. Uh, what a great, great conversation. Uh, we've covered a lot of ground. I'm so grateful to it because we're, we're talking about things that aren't being talked about, certainly in my world, in mainstream media, but are really, really important. And you know so much about them. So we're, we're really honored to have had this discussion with you. I want to kick it back to Jamil for uh, his uh, closing words. Jamil. Ollie, thanks so much uh, for joining us today. And Michelle, really appreciate all the great insights and thoughts. I mean, obviously a critical issue for our nation at this, uh, at this time uh, as we're looking towards, as we're looking to come out of this COVID challenge. I um, mean, we really are facing a very real rising power in China that doesn't play by the rules of the usual system. And so really appreciate your thoughts on that, Michelle. It'll be interesting to see what happens after the election. Ollie, I can't thank you enough for being here. And thanks to you all for joining us tonight. Thanks all. Thank you for joining us for this presentation from the National Security Institute. Find out more about the Institute and upcoming events at nationalsecurity.gmu.edu. Also be sure to follow us on Twitter at MasonNatSec. If you like what we are doing here, please be sure to rate, review, and subscribe so that more people can find our show. We'd like to thank Claude Jennings for editing and Grant Haver for production assistance.